This is a recording from a Sunday meeting of the BC Humanist Association in Vancouver. Humanism is a progressive worldview that, without supernaturalism, affirms our ability and responsibility to lead meaningful, ethical lives capable of adding to the greater good of humanity. To learn more about humanism and to support our work, visit bchumanist.ca and make sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the BC Humanist Podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of our staff or board of directors. Today is uh, Bree Gardner of Access BC. The title of Bree's presentation is Access BC Reproductive Justice Policy as Community Healing, Reclamation, and Transformative Justice. And I'll let you introduce yourself more than that. Please welcome Bree. Thank you. Uh, hi, I'm Bree. I'm going to talk a lot and then I'm going to let you ask questions. And you can ask me questions in the middle if you want. Ready? Sweet. So uh, it's a great honor to be on this land, home of the Coast Salish people, including the territories of the Musqueam Nation, uh, which is traditionally along the Fraser River, the Squamish Nation, traditionally to the north, and the Tsleil-Waututh Nation towards the Burrard Inlet. These are the caretakers of the unceded land, now known as Vancouver. Uh, for thousands of years, this, sorry, I have to remember that I can't talk with my hands and a mic. For thousands of years, it has served as a pl- um, place of meeting, gathering, and a settlement. Wow, my speech just went away there. Here we go. Um, I have had the great privilege to be on many different lands with many different people. I was born in Mi'kma'ki in a town once known as Bunamagadi, uh, now known as Dartmouth, home of the Mi'kmaq Nation. Uh, This land was named as a place plentiful for fishing, a place of ritual, uh, of harvest, and of abundance before the harsh winters signaled a journey inland. I was born into a treaty that called itself the Peace and Friendship Act, which was signed in 1976 between the Mi'kmaq, Maliseet, and Peskamakati peoples, and the British Crown, which never discussed or implied a surrender of land. And so this and many promises were made and broken under various treaties across this now country, especially under the guise of friendship and collaboration. I spent most of my adult life on Treaty 7 land, home and territory of the Blackfoot Confederacy, which includes the Siksikuk, Pagani, and Kainai First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, the Sony Nakoda, Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. This land is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. There, on the land where the Bow River meets the Elbow River, uh, known in Blackfoot as Mokinsis, now known as Calgary, most of my understanding and practice of this work was founded. Presently, I am based on the unceded Lekwungen and Wissanic land, now known as Victoria. I take time to talk about the diversity of people's lands that I've occupied and settled and been influenced by um, because this work wouldn't exist without the resiliency and knowledge of the many diverse people of this land. Um, Today I'm going to talk to you about reproductive justice, which to many many missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, as well as the hundreds of thousands of mothers who were taken from them, and the many who have, who had children taken from them, sorry, and the many who have and continue to be impacted by forced sterilization do not have meaningful access to. Reproductive justice cannot exist on this land or in spirit until we tangibly cease the removal of sovereignty and continued marginalization towards Indigenous people particularly Indigenous parents. Social work and foster care systems still actively enact policies that allow things like residential schools in the 60s scoops, continues and enabled forced sterilization of Indigenous women and girls, and continues to allow restrictions on who can access culturally relevant um, education and resources for their children, none of which sounds like justice or access or equality. So in this speech, I hope to talk about transformative justice, which in lay terms is the relationship of healing 
between an individual marginalized person or group and the systems that marginalize them. This framework is taken directly from um, indigenous ways of knowing and accessing justice that was and continues to be dismissed and erased through ongoing genocide and colonization. Um, I hope to talk to you about body sovereignty, which indigenous people in Canada have, been, have had forcibly removed since our country's institution. The freedom to speak their own language, practice their own cultures, raise their children in safety without violent government intervention and genocide. Um, these are all vital and non-negotiable aspects of family and body autonomy. Uh, indigenous people whose intergenerational trauma from the past 152 years of ceaseless and unrelenting violence brings to them, at times, higher rates of malady and addiction that offers additional hardships and barriers both interpersonally, intergenerationally, and through continued state and cultural violence, through confirmation bias, through stigma, judgment, and a refusal to begin the reconciliation process to offer better access to healing and resources. Indigenous people of Canada also platform my own personal ability to be here today, to exist as a trans person, as a disabled person, as the person who experiences poverty, mental illness, and who has survived, among many things, domestic violence, because their resiliency and their fight for survival that demanded better for themselves also carried with them everyone else who was experiencing ongoing state violence. Land acknowledgements are a key part of the reconciliation process, but understanding your position on such a powerful land is a vital way to heal the ongoing harm that all of us in this room are still actively engaged in. I see sometimes people treat land acknowledgements like, um, like a checkbox for what you do before you start like the real content. And I urge all of you to resist this idea that the land is irrelevant to any of the work that takes place on it, including my speech today. Um, for those who came for something on a talk completely different, um, consider what we have all gained and prosper from on the backs of such suffering, including the ability to discuss the nuance of reproductive justice. Um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is a highly accessible document that talks more about this and the history, as well as there's a newly released Missing and Murdered Women and Girls uh, report, and I strongly urge all of you to read it. There's also um, this really cool YouTube account where you can listen to Indigenous people read it to you. Um, and so there's a lot of different ways that you can get to know what I'm talking about if my land acknowledgements feel weird. Um, I also want to take a moment that this is a part of my speech that requires a little bit of a content warning. Um, from here out, I'm going to talk about reproductive justice and its context, uh, a context that references domestic violence, rape, homelessness, colonization, white supremacy, genocide, and injustice. Um, some of us in the room have experienced this, and I urge you to leave at any point if you need a break for whatever reason. Um, sugar helps with stress-related blood sugar crashes, so if you're feeling weird, grab something sweet and come back if you want to, or leave and come back, or leave and don't come back. Whatever you want. I will not be upset. Um, later, I will put my contact information up so that if you guys have any questions or feelings or you feel like this speech hurt you, you can message me, and I promise that I will get back to you within four days. Um, I also urge those of you who have not been in conversations with topics like this before to notice discomfort, both in your body and where it lives, maybe name it, um, and also that discomfort is different than a lack of safety. Sometimes they feel the same, um, and to notice that difference and to resist turning discomfort into a new topic, um, maybe one of personal guilt or lack of knowing about a conversation. Um, discomfort is how we grow and do better, and it keeps us from being stuck. It also comes up a lot in conversations like this, particularly around this topic, which is why I like to be like, it's okay to be uncomfortable and it's okay to not know things. Um, just resist the urge to make it talk about a lack of safety because that is something that happens a lot and it is not helpful. 
Um, I want to talk about not being stuck and not being stuck in discomfort. And it is the essence of healing. And so let's talk about healing. Ready? Yeah. Yes, I can talk less fast. For sure. Thank you for saying that. And feel free to interrupt me literally whatever you want, friends. Like, it's good. So the reason I'm here today is for a campaign called Access BC. Um, about a year ago, my oldest friend and roommate, Devin Black, um, along with our mutual friend, Dr. Uh, Teal Phelps Bondaroff, started this campaign. Um, there have been uh, pins and cards over there, so grab them if you find interest in our campaign. Um, Access BC as it is right now is a policy that will platform what I hope to be a bigger conversation about reproductive justice, um, but in its current iteration, it's a legislation that aims to make all prescription contraception free in BC, which removes a major barrier um, to a vast number of people who wouldn't be able to access these services, right? Finances, makes sense. So for a moment, I'm gonna talk about the specifics of the policy and itself and why it's important, but I'm hoping to not spend a ton of time about the policy itself because I have a bigger, kind of cooler conversation about gender and access and sovereignty and justice and healing. Um, yeah. So. It's simple. Access BC, we want prescription contraceptions to be free for everyone, for every reason, kind of regardless of anything, really. Um, which sounds like it's really, really simple, and it is. And it's also really not. Um, logistically, IUDs cost between $75 and $380, which for some people is a pretty impossible amount of money to drop in one span. Um, oral contraception right now costs about $20 a month or $180 a year. And while it's a cheaper option and that might seem affordable, for a lot of people it still isn't. Um, it also is one that carries more side effects than some of the other more expensive options do. And so lower income people who may be struggling to pay for the cheaper version might not actually get a great option anyways. So if we make them free, we don't have to worry about that. Currently, if you can't afford this, you can apply to um, Fair Pharmacare. Uh, and hope that you're lucky enough to A, know that the program exists and how to apply, B, have adequate proof of employment and financial status, which is sometimes known as means testing. It's less common than you'd think, uh, particularly for people who don't have regular access to salaried full-time employment, um, and C, hoping that you'll effectively be able to understand how to navigate cumbersome paperwork systems in order to get it, but also in order to maintain it. Some young adults are covered under their parents' coverage, but young people are often able or often forced to give up their privacy in order to make choices about their bodies. Um, there's a host of things that are wrong with this and a host of reasons why kids don't want to tell their parents things. Um, religious conflict would be one of them. Um, more commonly, it's a lack of safety with that parent. And there's a lot of other reasons, but most of them, it's important to know that they come with violence or punishment, isolation, or even a removal of family support or care. So that's not awesome. Um, additionally, and many people forget about this, but people access birth control for reasons that are entirely unrelated to reproduction. Uh, the hormone progesterone, which is in a lot of different kinds of birth control, also help treat medical conditions such as dysmenorrhea, which is like extremely painful bleeding, um, menorrhagia, which is disruptive heavy flow, um, premenstrual symptom PMS, which recently a study came out and said that it's actually profoundly linked to suicidality. Hormonal skin conditions, which don't sound super important, but um, can often act as a barrier between people finding and maintaining jobs. 
um, particularly in things like the service industry. Endometriosis is a huge one, and I'm going to talk about it a lot. But a lot of people are um, hospitalized for endometriosis and also don't get to go to work because the pain of it is so bad it has to do with your organs, um, as well as it treats iron-deficient anemia. So there's more of them, but those are the main ones. Um, and people being able to access birth control for not just reproduction is also like a cool side effect of having it be for free. Um, and now I'm going to talk to you about how much this costs. Um, a 2010 study from Option Sexual mm -hmm. Health estimated that every $1 we spend on contraceptive support can save as much as $90 in public expenditure um, for other social supports. Uh, their study estimated that if the BC government could, sorry, the BC government would save about $95 million if they implemented our policy, which is pretty cool. Um, and that $95 million doesn't include periphery costs, such as administrative savings for social services that we would hope would be in decline um, because of our services being free. In the UK, they have a program like this already. Um, and over the course of the 13 years, it's been proven that it has a, an 11 to 1 financial benefit. I don't like talking a whole lot about finances. I'm not going to talk about this for so much longer. But essentially what you need to know is that Canada is really far behind in our medical services and healthcare systems. I mean, we live beside the states, so it's hard to think that we're behind, but we super are. Um, the cost of the program that we want to have passed would cost about $52 million, or 0.326% of the provincial health budget, um, which would then pay for itself basically double in years following that. There is also a study um, from that option sexual health in 2010 that said that the cost of one non-complicated delivery um, not happening would pay for the yearly contraception of 33 people. So it's like economically a good policy. Um, another impact, again, I'm not going to talk about this a lot, but is on the private sector. Um, basically because we don't have a provincial program that buys drugs, um, it's not regulated, dosing is all over the place, and uh, having a provincial program would dampen the costs that would increase with individual pharmaceutical companies if we're not buying them together. Um, it also would regulate the dosing, um, which would cover part of the problem of having like lower dosing prescriptions be less effective and also less accessible. Does that make sense? $52 million to implement, and then after that it would actually be running a benefit. So no, just the $52 million that one time for cost of um, it's also important to mention here that emergency contraception, sometimes known as Plan B, is already over-the-counter. Um, Mifigaimiso, which I use a lot as an abortion doula, um, colloquially Mifi, is the gold standard drug. Um, it's been used for 30 years across everywhere else in Europe. We just made it free provincially. It used to cost about $300 for a single-use application, and we pay for that. So we have a precedent for doing this already, and that's why Access BC is we think it's pretty low-hanging fruit to get this policy passed. So I could talk to you about how equity for those with estrogen-producing bodies is lagging in this and most areas. By mentioning also that vasectomies, which are a semi-permanent measure of contraception, is also already covered by the province, and free condoms are pretty easy to come by. I don't want to get too weighed down in arguments you've already heard about people who aren't men get paid less, they have more costs, and generally have a lot of barriers to things in this world. Because honestly, I think that y'all can know what feminism is, and if you can't, there's a lot of resources that aren't me that can tell you about that. For the rest of my time here, I want to move away from this traditional talk of policy about justifying an end to state violence 
and government control through facts and stats and money because frankly as an activist I hate talking about money it's the worst part of my job um, and also I think there's a really cool conversation that I'm really excited to get to about how access generally improves everything for everyone in every way forever um, and specifically making contraceptions free changes a really stigmatized part of our culture that I think is truly profound I'm gonna give you some terms and then I'm gonna give you a chance to like make sure that we're all on the same page and ask some questions before I move forward. Um, so I speak activist. Sometimes I say words that you might not be familiar with. Feel free to just like interrupt me because I'm in my own little echo chamber sometimes. Um, I'm gonna refer, as I kind of already have, to people who can get pregnant as those with estrogen producing bodies. Um, it's an imperfect way to describe this and there are, are a lot of exceptions to even describing it that way, but for the sake of brevity, this is the, the term that I'm gonna use. It's a fancy way of acknowledging that there are many kinds of people and that women are a big part of that demographic that can get pregnant, but they're not the only one. Trans men can and do get pregnant, non-binary people such as myself, which is to say that people that are neither men nor women um, can get pregnant. Trans women can't get pregnant, and I think it's a disservice to talk about women generally as a category of people who can get pregnant because trans women exist and are women. Um, even cis women, that is like women who identify with their sex that's arbitrarily assigned at birth, um, don't universally experience the ability to get pregnant. And some, if not all, some but not all, intersex folks can also get pregnant. Um, but it's usually because their body produces enough estrogen and has the anatomy to allow for it. Hence, estrogen producing bodies. Everyone with me? Sweet. I've explained transformative justice to you, but it'll come up again, so I'm gonna say it again. It's an indigenous framework trying to heal damaged relationships between individuals or groups of individuals and a state or structure that is marginalizing them. In its spirit, this policy aims to be transformative um, because it gives back access to those the most traditionally marginalized by structures of Western medicine. Um, so what does having free access to contraception mean to transformative justice? Uh, currently, the only population who in BC who have unfettered access to contraception is disabled people, which exists as a lasting reminder that eugenics are alive and well in this province. Eugenics is the idea that some populations should be eradicated for being less than. And we know this um, in historical remembrances of things like the Holocaust, and we have other larger historical examples that we get taught, partly in the way to make us think that it doesn't actively happen here. And let me tell you, it sure still does. Um, I'm not going to talk about it a ton, but there's two kinds of eugenics that are actively ongoing in the reproductive justice sphere. Positive eugenics, which is where people who are seen as ideal, namely like white, cis, straight, not disabled, um, middle-class families are supported to make as many choices as they want, particularly around having a lot of children. And so they're encouraged to do that by having a lot of resources. They're typically the people who can afford and access contraception, but they're also the people who tend to get a lot of resources and support for having kids if they want them. Disabled people, trans people, mentally ill people, people of color, particularly black and indigenous women, um, are additionally impacted not only by the positive eugenics of not having those resources, but the negative eugenics, which actively encourages them not to procreate, which is why we have, for disabled people, free and unfettered access to this thing that everyone else does not. Um, mostly because our offspring is seen as inherently part of a greater problem. 
So by making contraception free, we're removing this small inequity of negative eugenics that allows everyone equal access to family planning, which I think is pretty cool. Everyone still with me? Am I talking too fast still? I'm so sorry. I'm going to do better. Okay. I can also, I'm going to, if you need it, I'll email you a copy of my speech so that you can read it over later. I'm sorry. So me personally, I'm interested in community building. Uh, that's my job. That's what I've been doing for the last 11 years. It's pretty cool. In order to build healthy communities, we need to have a diverse population that are supported in the ways that we need. Uh, we already have so much diversity in this really cool world, um, but the distribution for the support for that diversity is deeply unequal. When I say that we need to support equal communities, I don't mean that everyone has the exact same house or job or dreams. In fact, that to me is the opposite of my understandings of equality. It's formal equality which I can't get too much into, but it's basically a system that we live in that fails us every day. We need a structure that supports some kids not wanting, or some parents not wanting kids for any reason, ever, ever. We also need a structure that supports some people who want eight kids, right now, um, that also supports survivors of sexual assault and rape who do want kids, but not in this way, and the career human who wants to get pregnant when they finally have access to a job that offers parental leave and health benefits the one that allows te teens to have kids if they want, but doesn't rely on their ability to feel safe disclosing to the parents that they are sexually active in order to not. A structure that supports sex workers who needs contraceptions as part of their jobs, as well as trans people who assumed that we're not able to have kids and who may not have access to supports that inform us can. All of these people are better served when a financial barrier doesn't exist or factor into their decision about family planning. This kind of community also serves to foster a bigger picture and a bigger understanding of our world. One that respects the choices of each individual, that they make choices for their own life, their own body, and their own situation. One that doesn't continue to encourage that this weird idea that we know what's best for one another, um, because we're the only person in our life that can know our situation, and no one else can be the expert of our lives or our needs. Access BC continues, um, but doesn't finish this conversation. It's an old conversation. Most well care taken again by the indigenous communities on this land. Um, and structurally, it's being really damaged and eroded in almost every aspect of our society right now. Before I extrapolate into a bigger and more esoteric conversation about healing and justice, I'm gonna tell you that our campaign is a little bit in the red right now. So if y'all wanna donate, that would be cool. We need about $2,000 to get us through the provincial election, or not the provincial, the federal election. Um, even though this, again, is a provincial campaign. I know it's confusing. Um, folks who don't have money can write letters to their MLAs. There's little cards over there that tell you how to do that, which is pretty cool, and pins. Um, we also need more speaking gigs like this to raise awareness. Um, and if you need some personal gain to get you invested in why you should help this campaign, it saves taxpayer money. It removes more people from an overburdened healthcare system, so it might, you know, like impact your wait times. It also improves the health of communities. I think it's pretty cool. Um, so if you want to get involved, you can talk to me later, um, or you can grab one of those cards over there that I brought, and they'll tell you how to do it. And so now I'm gonna talk what I'm really excited about talking about, which is that reproductive justice is basically this tiny little step towards a bigger shift in our society um, that with other campaigns and similar structural shifts can support and contribute to the ends of the evils of capitalism, to oppression and to curate healthier and happier communities. I realize that's like a huge promise, 
I'm stoked to convince you. Hegemony is an incredibly detrimental part of the overall ingenuity and resilience of a community. We know this. Um, it impacts their economics and, more importantly, their health and sustainability. I don't believe that a gathering of people who look, act, and want the same thing with little to no difference is, an, is a community. It's controversial. Lately, I've been calling these hegemonic gatherings scenes. Um, because communities require difference in order to maintain themselves, and the isolated echo chambers that we continue to build for ourselves are so fragile and full of destruction that we're literally eating ourselves alive right now. For the interest of private, well-funded, loud, and well-resourced privileged people, the conflation of scenes as community is a reproduction and continuation of right supremacy. Um, we're it makes us believe that there's a single understanding of an ideal human and also gives us this ideal of a failed human. And this is going to be like a crux of why I think this is so profound. So by providing healthcare for free, um, we're healing the parts of our society that treat some people as failed humans. As we stand on this land, you know, not far from East Hastings, I think we can all conjure images of what poverty does to our ability to make choice. How a lack of compassion for those lives look different from ours manifest in being ostracized or judged or blamed for their lack of access to human rights, rather than trying to support and understand those we can visibly see struggling to maintain any sort of safety or basic need or humanity. We need to support those people regardless of whether or not there was choice in how their outcomes of their lives look. And to be clear, poverty is never a choice. To begin to move towards a society where substantive equality is, that is like a kind of society that functions where people can make many types of decisions and decisions that not everyone agrees with and face a myriad of struggle and oppression while still being safe and provided for. Substantive equality is this idea of instead of making a rule and applying it rigidly across everyone regardless of context, we take into consideration how everyone is different and apply our rules in ways that understand that. An example of this, though dated, um, is affirmative action. Formal equality is the opposite of substantive equality. And to be clear, we live in formal equality now and it sucks and we hate it. I mean, I don't know if you guys hate it, I hate it. Um, it's what we use as our legal system and it means that everyone technically is allowed to have children and as many as they want and it doesn't consider how different people, which I've already discussed and will continue to discuss, might not have the same access. That flat rule that applies to everyone, like oh, everyone can have kids but you have to pay for contraception if you don't, is why formal equality is bad. Substantive equality, is access BC. It's a small part of it. I mean, it's a larger structural thing, but if you can't pay for it, you still get access to it. So substantive equality promises um, equal access to outcomes rather than equal access to opportunity, which is, I think, a really cool and radical thing to do. Implementing substantive equality in every aspect of our society, in every daily interaction, is the way I feel that we can start to address how violent and oppressive this world is and it's a direct action towards that transformative justice that I keep talking about, which makes the world better for literally everyone. So I'm hoping to inspire you that we all know, I mean, you folks know, that there are big pressing conversations about police, the environment, capitalism, sovereignty, religion, um, and different forms of oppression that I think collectively we all feel some kind of like despair about regardless of our educational backgrounds and ability to understand the nuance of maybe some of those jargony terms. None of us, I think, feel like we have perfect or good solutions um, 
to systems that we know more and more every day are killing us, um, particularly as social justice becomes more in our like common dialectic. We know that the structure of our society is harming everyone, even our most privileged, but especially the most marginalized. And if we think too hard about it, I don't think anyone finds like a particular amount of like sleep or joy or ability to participate in this world if we know too much about injustice. To turn on the news for a lot of people is an exercise in depression and despair. I'm an externalist. I get told all the time that I pay attention to the news too much, and that's why I'm an angry, sad person. Um, but the reason is because it leaves us with this pile of existential dread where we don't know what we're doing. And personally, I hate feeling relevant. I hate feeling powerless. And so I try to find ways to fix our communities. And so this is one of them. Um, all of this speech is to say that the solution to these bigger big, looming, inescapable problems is, for me, in every tiny decision that we make about justice. This policy is like one of a thousand different ways that we can do it, um, and it's a step towards all of these bigger, looming evils in our world. Um, the policy is transformative not only because it helps people tangibly access one of the most controversial forms of healthcare, but because it's a small cultural shift away from an understanding of individualism that encourages things like white supremacy, homophobia, and many other forms of oppression. Reproductive justice, to me, is about reclamation. And so I'm going to tell you about that reclamation. Does everyone have questions for that, what I just said, though? Neat. There will be time afterwards, too, so you don't have to know now. Um, firstly, it's a reclamation of our community to serve our needs by allowing us to have different needs. It resists that hegemony that I talked earlier about eating us alive. We reclaim our humanity from the parts of capitalism that would prefer us to be mechanized robots with no needs for things like community and healthcare and rest and joy and fulfillment. Um, by disallowing it, capitalism, to tell us that there are people more deserving than others and that some forms of family are more deserving of choices. Which we do by providing free healthcare and contraception to everyone, regardless of income. We reclaim our ability to have community by moving away from mechanized forms of capitalism by not allowing compound financial pressure to dictate our time and passion and our needs in a way that overrules um, is overruled by a demand to earn the right to basic things like food and healthcare and water and shelter and entertainment, which means that we would have more time to build intentional, meaningful connections to each other, connections that we might have more time to acknowledge and observe and process things that we don't understand, like they, them pronoun use, or why people practice Catholicism, or how herbalism is just as powerful as Western medicine. Um, we've never had the time or maybe interest before because all of our emotional physical energy was drained by jobs that maybe we had a great deal of passion and fulfillment in, but more likely super do not and are obligated to do in ways because we have to prove that we deserve things, like healthcare, because we have to pay for them. Um, I think that also the amount of time that we work under capitalism is pretty bullshit. I mean, y'all might not work now, but I imagine that there's a point at which you too, or maybe not, were scrolling through Facebook, wasting your time at your job because there were too many hours to fill and not enough work. I experienced this a lot. We reclaim our idea of what it means to be able to consent by giving people we fundamentally disagree with the choice to do with their own lives and bodies what they know to be best for themselves. I'm going to harp on this a lot, friends. Even and especially if we cannot fathom making that same decision for ourselves. You folks as the BC Humanists are especially aware of this because you folks lobby to have Christian prayer removed from legislature because you don't consent to the state being tied to one expression of hegemonic religion. 
much like I do not consent or believe in the state telling some people that they have access to health care and others that do not. We reclaim justice by allowing these decisions, um, as long as they're not hurting or controlling anyone, to be treated with as much autonomy as the ones that we make for our own lives, knowing and trusting that they make sense for our situation, our values, our hopes and dreams and lived realities. We also reclaim autonomy by allowing a cultural shift back to the idea that we are all experts in our own experience. Experts of our lives, experts of our bodies, experts of our families and providing for them. Experts who all have valid and precious and valuable contributions to this messy, nuanced and imperfect world. I have never met an expert who didn't benefit from other experts to collaborate with, to learn from, to be taught by, to grow and evolve. And allowing a diversity of experience and desire and the need is validated in how we continue to be able to ask for help, which we also reclaim. We reclaim our ability to ask for help. None of us live in a, learn or live in a vacuum. When we remove the financial barrier from that help, asking for it is immensely more accessible, particularly to youth or highly marginalized populations who have to ask for help more often, but also for people who might not actually know what they want or need and don't have to make those decisions or know what they want based on their financial status. I am so sure that everyone in this room has experienced a crisis where they had to ask for help. And you know how difficult it is in this society to ask for help, um, particularly when you're afraid of judgment or consequences or someone saying no to you. Um, I hope that you've all had a similar experience and privilege of being able to ask for help and maybe be scared of it and maybe not, but get the help that you wanted and experience how profoundly and truly life-changing it is for you to be able to ask for something and then get given it because you asked. I say hope, like I hope that you experience that because I also know that the latter part of that, getting given the help that you need, is rarer because of cultural ideas of needing help, meaning that you're in some way broken or lesser than or failure um, or not worthy of that help that you're asking for. And this idea comes from a larger cultural understanding, partly because we let we have these legislative policies and precedents that tell us that some people are more deserving than others, that those with the best access don't have to be vulnerable, don't have to ask for help, because the system already offers them the access that we're struggling to find for ourselves. And so from the outside, these more privileged people, they look more sane, they look more easy, they look like they're less needy, but in fact, they're not. They're just ostracizing us for having less access to things that they never thought to ask for. We also reclaim knowledge. We reclaim so many things, friends. By being able to trust ourselves in what our bodies experience and tell us to make decisions based on that extremely potent knowing, we reclaim our ability to trust that we know what's best for ourselves, even if we don't know it. Which means sometimes that you don't, if you don't know something, you get to find a doctor or a friend or a religion or a community or a plant and help consult and name what's happening for you. Um, which builds better, stronger, healthier communities um, that don't need to work extremely taxing jobs to afford these basics. It curates and allows finding purpose in pursuits that maybe don't offer a lot of capitalistic gain, but are nourishing personally, professionally, or through a community. We also reclaim so much by refusing that this idea that some of us are failed humans. I've been bringing this up a lot, this idea of failed humans. Failed humans don't get access. They also don't get respect. And I should mention that this idea of failed human is everywhere in our society, and it's also a racist imperial ideal that was bought to us by slavery and colonization, and it's endured forever. Um, 
This violence of field humans is recreated in nearly every interaction we have with one another, but it's especially easy to illustrate in our interactions with the homeless population. Every time someone asks for a dollar on a street corner, maybe to buy drugs, maybe to get money for them and their child, and you refuse them based on how much you relate to them or how much they look like you, or if their suffering scares you or they act in ways that you judge them for, you are recreating this idea of a failed human. And it's not your fault. We've all been taught to do this, and we all continue to do this every day. Um, we are taught to do it by not having equal access to things, again, like birth control, like housing, and in this situation, to not intervene and help them in every, is every single one of us accepting and allowing every single day that it's okay for some of us to be considered failed human. This is exactly the same thing we do when we make healthcare a play to play, pay to play system, which is exactly why it so easily seeps into everyday interaction. We reproduce an environment that slavery entitles us to, to believe that there are failed humans or less worthy, and then we exist on a hierarchy that some people know better and can give us access to decisions that we make about our own lives because we could possibly not know to follow this analogy of panhandlers, homeless people, whatever you want, maybe you think you know better than these homeless folks. Maybe you think that you refuse to give them money because you decided to buy them food, removing what might be the only choice they are able to make in a day to govern their own existence. It's a similar thing. Kind of like when the government decides that marriage is only for straight people or healthcare is only available to the rich. Probably you don't have to ask about preference or diet because beggars can't be choosers, which again is a super messed up logic on preference, on who deserves preference and choice and healthcare and needs. Um, as an ex-homeless celiac, I can tell you the frustrations of trying to find gluten-free food in my daily life, let alone when I was on the streets. So that dollar you refused them might have bought them a cigarette or beer, and I promise this is all related, but it helps them escape the horrors of dehumanization. Maybe it was about the money that they needed to call their kids. A lot of people have invisibilized kids. It's not unrelated to healthcare and reproductive justice. You've decided that that dollar that might be spent on the drugs you disagree with and blame for their homelessness instead of the systems that refuse to let them be homeless in the first place, like capitalism, drugs that are probably inhibiting their ability to feel pain and a hunger, and through that momentary reprieve might access them better resources because they're able to think more clearly, because they have systems of their own to deal with the situation that they know best for themselves. And so even homeless, drug-addicted people can know what is best for them in situations we cannot fathom. I try to tell this to you, yep, yeah, because people think that it's unrelated. People think that every time we take away a choice, it's for a reason. It's because we, as educated people, know better. And I'm looking at the time now, and I'm running out of time, so I'm gonna skip some stuff, woo! Um, but my, my like understanding of why I'm trying to make it about homeless people getting money is that I was once homeless. And I used to use coffee as a way to function. I have unmedicated at the time ADHD. And so when I was homeless asking for money and people would offer me food, I was like, no, I want coffee so that I can think clearly so that I can go to that resource and talk to them about my situation so that maybe I can get off the streets. And people were so vitriolic and angry and vicious for being like, how dare you for thinking that you know your situation better than I do a person who had never met you who was trying to buy you food and instead you want money. I guess you want drugs. I guess you're a bad person. I guess you're a field human. That is the same to me as when we're like, no, if you can't pay for healthcare, you can't access it. I talk a lot in the rest of my speech about how white supremacy and marginalization are reenacted in these forms and how we basically choose field humans. And I think that having a policy like Access BC where 
we're not making choices for other people is really sweet. I don't know what else I want to say. What else do I Oh, I'm going to talk about mistakes just for a bit. It's going to take four minutes. I have it timed out here, and then we're going to ask questions. Yeah? Sweet. Cool. So mistakes are a really big and important part of our lives, friends. Um, and reproductive justice is often, the healthcare system that surrounds reproductive justice is often in control of trying to eliminate mistakes. And so I'm going to tell you right now that that's silly. Mistakes are, an, are this profound gift to everyone around the person making a mistake. They're a profound gift to others as we watch others make mistakes because we don't have to make them ourselves and then we get to learn from them. We also watch people recover from mistakes and learn about compassion and forgiveness and trust and hope. We're informed by our mistakes about who we are and who we want to be. We watch people make mistakes and find reprieve because we know we're not the only ones. And mistakes are this incredibly generous thing to be able to make, and they are also the crux of reproductive justice. If we're not able to make mistakes with our bodies, I don't know what we're allowed to make mistakes about. And if mistakes are a profoundly important part of our culture and growing, why would we regulate them? I think it's a mistake that we have pay-to-play healthcare. And I think that mistakes are important for growing as long as we acknowledge the impact that they have. Which is why I'm here to talk to you about how you should support Access BC. I have more things, but I'm going to stop here so y'all can ask me some questions, yeah? Sweet.